My youngest daughter right now is just a fan of uh, dinosaurs. She's a little paleontologist. She just knows all the dinosaur names, loves playing with them and telling us all uh, about them. Her, her dream, she told me yesterday, was, Dad, if at some point in my life I could just pet a dinosaur, I would just be <laughs> so happy. It just breaks your heart as a parent to be like, probably not going to happen, right? I mean, although, come on, you know, you got Jurassic Park going on and, you know, like, can't, can't we, you know, can't we clone dinosaurs yet? In fact, um, Jurassic Park got us in trouble recently. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, because she loves dinosaurs so much, we shared with her that there's this movie out there that actually has people interacting with dinosaurs. Now, they're computer-generated. And when she heard that there was a movie with human beings interacting with dinosaurs, she's like, I must see this. And we're like, no, you won't. Um, <clears throat> Not yet, at least. Uh, so her and actually her, her cousin are like, when we're 16, we'll watch it together. We're like, great, you do that when you're 16. But she finds out she really wants to see the movie Jurassic World. She just keeps begging. We said, just stop asking. Well, Hannah and I were, were gone a few weeks ago for, for a few nights, and uh, Claire was staying at my folks' house, and they're sitting down to, to dinner, and uh, Cece is talking about her love of dinosaurs, and then she laments. She says, you know, there's this movie called Jurassic World, and um, my parents won't let me see it, but I really want to see it. And so my dad, kind of playfully uh, teasing and testing his granddaughter, looks at her, and he says, well, your mom's not here. Now, in my nine-year-old daughter's brain, it almost like exploded, right? She was just, she just immediately was like, I, 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 I just don't know how to comprehend this. And it came across this way. Literally, he says, your mom's night here. And she goes, I've never been in this situation before. <laughs> She's like, you're saying there's an option? What should I do? And uh, fortunately, her older sister was there to rein in her grandfather. Uh, no. And she said, you know, what do you think you should do? And she says, well, my parents said I should obey, and the right thing for me to do is obey, so I'll obey. And I'm like, oh, good, good to hear. But I love that reaction from her, right? She was put in a situation where she was just like, I've never been in this situation before. What, 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 should, I, what should I do? Um, for her, it was, a, uh, it was a very tenuous situation in her sweet little nine-year-old life. Um, but, you know, today we're going to come to a story in Daniel chapter 3 where the individuals in this story, God's people in this story, are going to be in a situation that they really had not yet been in before, a, a, a very um, difficult situation for them. Uh-oh, lights went out. Here we're going to we'll see what's going to happen with the screens. Uh, there it is. <clears throat> But they were, they're in this very difficult situation that in many ways is representative of a situation that you and I face all the time. It's a situation where the world is trying to, to conform us into its image, a, a situation where the question before these men in the story is, will I stand firm in the Lord or, or will I not? Cece on that day was faced with the question, will I obey my parents or, or will I not? And I think every day as we're going to look at this, we're, we're put in that situation, sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly, where the question before you and me is, will we stand firm? And so I want you to open in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. I'm going to do something a little different as we go through it. Um, I'm not going to read the entirety of the chapter. I'm going to read a lot of it, but I'm just going to make some comments along, along the way. Now, to set the context for this, if you're really going to get the full flavor of this story, let me just remind you where chapter 2 of Daniel 
ended. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He wanted people to interpret it. They weren't able to do it. Daniel says, I can do it, um, but not me. The Lord will give me the ability to do it. He's able to not just simply interpret the dream, but actually tell Nebuchadnezzar the dream and its interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar praises Daniel, elevates Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to, to rulers inside of Babylon, and he's praising God. But here's the thing. Do you remember what happened in the dream? The dream that Nebuchadnezzar had was of this giant statue with a head of gold and the different body parts made of different materials. And Nebuchadnezzar in the dream finds out from Daniel that the head of the statue, which is made of gold, represents him. But what happened to the statue in the dream? Eventually, it was destroyed and it was crushed. And, and so, so that's where kind of the story ends. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar the dream and its interpretation. And then lo and behold, look at how verse 1 of chapter 3 starts. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set, up, uh, he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He has this dream of a statue that eventually tumbles to the ground because it's made of different elements and a stone strikes it. And so what does he do? The first thought that he has, I know what I'll do. <laughs> I'm going to build a statue completely made of gold. The hubris and pride of Nebuchadnezzar is going to be something that's going to come up time and time again in this story. And so Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 3 starts, he builds this statue. Um, in reality, um, this story that we're about to read probably takes place maybe 18 years after the previous story. It sounds, though, in the text like it happens immediately, but from some intertextual stuff, we know that it's probably about 18 years later. So Daniel, or, so Daniel writes in Nebuchadnezzar, he builds this statue, and he sets it up in the, in the plains of Dura. Um, do you know where he actually sets this statue up? Uh, as best we can tell, he sets up this statue in the general location of where the Tower of Babel had once been attempted to be built. And, and, and so what's Nebuchadnezzar doing? Do you think he didn't know that story or wasn't familiar with it? I guarantee that he was. And, and so he's, he's building this statue, and he builds it, as we learn, for the purpose of what? Gathering together all of the rulers in his land. He's calling upon people that, that ultimately oversee his kingdom in different areas of the world to come together before this statue for one singular purpose, to bow down and worship the statue when they hear the music played. What he's doing here is he's putting the statue 90 feet tall, 9 feet in circumference, and he's building the statue in the place where the Tower of Babel once stood for the purpose of trying to bring the people of the world back together under his reign and under his rule. Friends, when humanity has tried to do that, what does history tell us? Things don't turn out well. But nonetheless, Nebuchadnezzar does this. And so that's what verses 2 and 3 and 4 say. They tell us that he gathers all the people together, all of these different rulers. And then he says something in verse 6. He says, if you do not bow down and worship the statue that I've made, whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Is um, his desire to have people worship the statue a suggestion? <laughs> Is that what it sounds like? No. It's a capital offense if you don't do what Nebuchadnezzar says. I've known this story since I was a little kid. Um, one of the things that always was curious to me for the longest time was, isn't the capital punishment kind of specific? Like a burning, fiery furnace. Like, of, out of all the ways you could kill people for disobeying you, 
why does he pick a burning, fiery furnace? You know, the answer is actually really obvious. You know, when you build a statue that's 90 feet tall, covered in gold, you're going to need quite a kiln to make that happen, right? And so there's no doubt that that burning, fiery furnace was not too far away from the statue. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he probably has a statue in one location. The furnace probably isn't too far away. And he's like, here's your choice, the statue or the flames. And so what happens? Well, verse 7 says that Nebuchadnezzar has the people play all of these instruments, the music plays, and it tells us that all the people, the nations and languages fell down and they worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. He got exactly what he wanted. His power was consolidated. People did what he said, right? Maybe not. Look at verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, now that is, those are Babylonians who serve as government officials for Nebuchadnezzar. So these are native Babylonians. They came forward and they maliciously accused the Jews Now, who are the Jews in this story? They're Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As we're going to find out, Daniel's not a part of this story. We don't know why. Um, Historians have tried to figure out why he's not going to be included in this story. One of the reasons could be that Nebuchadnezzar could have sent him off with all of these other officials coming into town. He could have sent Daniel off to another location in the kingdom to make sure that things were going okay. We don't know why exactly, but he's not there. But these men come and they accuse Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego of something. They say in verse 9, O king, live forever. There's all this pomp and circumstance. And they tell the king in verses 10 and 11 that, king, you remember you made this decree how everybody's supposed to come to a statue and bow down and worship the statue when the music is played? And Nebuchadnezzar's are like, yeah, tell me something I, I don't know. And they said, okay, we'll tell you something you don't know. Well, look at verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Do you notice their language? There are certain Jews whom you appointed over the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Here's something that Nebuchadnezzar did not know. In the midst of the huge crowd that was there, three men did not bow down. I've always looked at these Chaldeans who tattletale on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego And I'm like, don't you guys realize that if it hadn't been for Daniel interpreting the king's dream, that you would have all died? And yet, for some reason, these guys have it out for the Jews. And you wonder to yourself, like, why is that? And the answer is actually, again, pretty simple. These were men who had been in places of power. These were native Babylonians who were serving as government officials who had been close to Nebuchadnezzar. But after Daniel interpreted the dream... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these guys all leapt-frogged the Chaldeans, and so now they're in a place of power. So, So what these men are demonstrating to us is what we know is consistent with the human heart, which is we desire power, and when we lose it, we don't like it. And so they're willing to tattletale on these guys. These are petty, petty men. They lost their power. They want it back. And their tattletaling works. Verse 13 says that Nebuchadnezzar was furious with rage and commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought to him. And so they bring him. He brings Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before him. 
And Nebuchadnezzar asks him a question in verse 14. Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, you're anticipating that he's going to give him the opportunity to respond, but he doesn't. He doesn't do that at all. He just immediately continues. Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Oh, little does he know. He throws down the gauntlet before Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He says, here's the deal. If you will do what I've asked, if you will conform, all will go well with you. If you don't, you're dead men. Friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're put in a very, very difficult situation. See, what Nebuchadnezzar was doing here is that he wants everybody, including Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to bow down before this statue that he has constructed because Nebuchadnezzar is looking for conformity. He wants everyone in his kingdom on the same page. The Babylonian Empire was a multi-ethnic empire. It had a myriad of people who worshipped a myriad of different gods. And he builds this statue in the plain of Dura. He brings all these people together for a very specific purpose. Did you notice in the text that the statue isn't given a name? It's not called the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. It's not called the statue of the Babylonian gods. The fact that this statue is not given a name should be very telling for us about what Nebuchadnezzar is intending to do. That statue for Nebuchadnezzar was representative of the gods of Babylon, of the values of Babylon. And what Nebuchadnezzar was attempting to do in bringing everybody together was he was saying, it's not that you can't worship your gods, but I need you to make sure that I know that you acknowledge my gods as well. You're going to be paying allegiance to the gods of Babylon. He's not saying to anyone in his edict, you can't worship your God. He just wants to know that everybody is in line with what he wants. If I were to put it into modern vernacular, what Nebuchadnezzar here is doing, he's saying, in private, you can worship whatever gods you like, but in public, you must bow down to this image. You can worship your gods, just as long as you also worship our gods. See, what he was doing here was, in a sense, he was privatizing religion. Does this sound familiar? Nebuchadnezzar had created a world in which Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego lived, a world in which it was, yeah, it's okay to have your gods, but you have to accept my gods as well. In this moment, what's happening to Nebuchadnezzar or what's happening to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is they're being pressured, church. They're being pressured to conform to the ways of the world. And see, as we read this book of Daniel, one of the things that we're supposed to do is we're supposed to see ourselves as exiles just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So the things that are happening to them are the things that Daniel, as he's writing, as God has inspired him, is to say, listen, this is a reality for you as well. They faced it. They dealt with it. You're going to deal with it too. And what we learn from the first part of the story is this. As God's people, we will experience pressure to conform to the ways of this world. 
Daniel's writing this book to people in exile so that they're not blind, they're not ignorant to the fact that the world is trying to conform us to its ways. We were made in God's image. The world is trying to make us into, guess what? Its image. That's what these men are going through. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the story of God's people throughout time in history being put into situations where God's people are pressured to conform to the ways of the world. And in this story, not only are they looking to be conformed to the ways of this world, but the consequence for not doing so was what? Death. And let's be like really specific. What were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego really being pressured to do? How was Nebuchadnezzar trying to conform them? The pressure for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was not to forsake their God, but just to make room for other gods. To not just say that their way was the only way. Church, I see this story, I see this truth, and I think we today as God's people are faced with pressure to conform as well. We're not the only generation to experience it, but it is everywhere. There are some really obvious ways in which we're being pressured to conform, and then there are some like less obvious ways. Ways in which we're being called to bow down and worship, to walk in the ways of the world. Some ways are obvious, and some ways we don't even quite see it. If you're a business person here today, I'm here to tell you that, that continually the corporations um, in this world, the businesses of this world, that they're trying to conform us to a certain way of living and working. The bottom line for all Corporations and businesses is, is profit. That, that's, that's the God of this age for, for many corporations and many businesses. It's, it's are you bringing in the money? Are you making the goods in order to make a profit? And so here's one of the ways that sneakily the world tries to conform us. If you're in the business world today, you might be in a business where you're looking at your coworkers or you're looking at your competitors and they're doing things that are... Re- well, quite ruthless, or they're doing things that are just, quote-unquote, barely legal, and they're doing those things in order to ultimately get ahead. They'll lie about their competitors, or they'll even lie about a co- co-worker in order to get a promotion. Somebody in your workplace will, will take credit for work that they did not do. What's going on there? As a Christian in that kind of environment, when you see somebody in order to get a business deal, berate somebody else. You're watching that, and then you're seeing that person ultimately get the thing that they wanted or to make the money that they were hoping to get, and you watch that as a Christian, and you think, man, if I'm not as ruthless, if my language isn't as vulgar, if I'm not as aggressive, if I don't do those things that are just barely legal, I'm not going to get ahead. See, that's a way in which the values of this world are trying to conform you, and we're not even always aware of it. Because we see what the world wants and we say, you know what? If I'm going to function within this, I got to be the same way. And when you and I as followers of Jesus Christ say that we follow Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and yet we know the attitudes, we know the kind of speech, we know the kind of behavior that's consistent with following Jesus. And when we say, I follow and love Jesus Christ as Lord, but then over here in my business, in the way that I'm functioning in the workplace does not reflect that. My friends, if that's you, you're bowing the knee. You've allowed the world to conform you rather than standing firm. Like, 
There's then the more obvious ways that the world is trying to conform us. Within the media and in the entertainment, Christians are being asked to accept values in ways of thinking about sex and sexuality that go completely contrary to the design of God. Last night, Hannah and I were watching something together, and just a simple laundry detergent commercial came on the screen. And there were two women sitting there talking about their children that they had together in doing laundry. It was a lesbian couple that were being represented in the commercial talking about doing laundry together. And that's just being put forward as normative and something that we should look at and we should what? Just accept. Because why can't people who love each other of the same gender ultimately have a life together like that? And if you don't accept that, you're considered bigoted, you're considered hateful. And I say, listen, I didn't design it, God did, and God says it's this way. And for me to validate that, for me to say, no, this is, this is right and good and acceptable, is to, to encourage someone to walk down a path that's ultimately, according to the Word of God, harmful and destructive for them. In the area of sex, like for our young people that are here today, let me just tell you something as your pastor. Sex is good. Sex is great. And God designed it. And because he designed it, it's something that, that should be in, enjoyed within the context of the design that he has made it. And that the way that God has designed sex to be enjoyed and experienced is very clearly within the covenant of a man and a woman inside of marriage. And like, that's right and that's good, but the media and the world comes and says, no, 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 you must experience your sexuality. You must express it. You must put no, no cap on that, no hindrance on that. You can enjoy it. You can experience it whenever you want. And so this huge, massive survey was done about uh, six years ago. It took two groups of um, 18 to 23-year-olds. It had college-educated men. This is what the survey was. And um, it was a survey called Sex in America. And it took two, these two groups, 18 to 23-year-olds, one that grew up in religious homes that taught that sex outside of marriage was wrong, and then one that the other group was a group of men who grew up in communities and in homes where sex outside of marriage was not viewed as wrong. And it took these two, two groups and it, and it did a survey of them and it asked them the question, it says, how many of you are still virgins as your 18 to 23-year-olds? Well, the group that grew up in a community where sex was viewed as okay and outside of marriage it was fine, 23% of them said that they were no longer virgins. In this group over here, 28% said that they were no longer virgins. And what the statistician says is there was, no, there was negatively no difference between these, these two groups. Although they grew up in these different homes that expressed different values, one group had said, yeah, no, we just, we just lived out the values of, of our home. The other group said, you know what? Um, we believe that it's wrong, but nonetheless, we still did it anyway. Why is that? There is a tremendous pressure upon us to conform to the ways of the world. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they felt it, they experienced it. We feel it, we see it too. It's in so many realms. And here's the deal. What we see with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that failure to comply would lead to death for them. In our day, failure to comply to the ways of the world isn't necessarily going to lead to death, but it is going to lead to people not liking you. It's going to lead to being talked 
down to. It's going to be, well, you and I being labeled. And nobody loves not being liked. We all want to be liked. So the pressure is there. It's tremendous. Here's my question, though. Do you feel it? Do you sense a cultural pressure in your workplace, in the realms where you function as a Christian? Do you feel the pressure? Because if you don't feel the pressure to conform, there's a danger. Do you want to know what the danger is? If you don't feel the pressure, it might be that you've already conformed, that you haven't actually been able to recognize the difference, and you've just simply gone along with the flow of the culture. This story says we should be aware of it. Are you aware of it? Are you aware that the world holds values that are different? I've said this once, I'll say it a million times. We live in a post-Christian world. In America, the Judeo-Christian ethic and morality that was supported by our founding fathers is no longer, for lack of better terms, the law of the land. It's not what guides our institutions, either governmental or educationally. And it sure doesn't do it in the media. And so we are continually going upstream. As God's people, we will be pressured to conform to the ways of the world. But wait, the story gets better. As God's people, we will suffer for following God's ways. Look what happens to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, this is one of the most profound professions of faith that you'll find in all of Scripture. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they feel the pressure and they respond by saying two things. Number one, you're not the boss of me. Did you see that? It's a paraphrase, but it's there. They say, we have no need to respond to you on this matter. What they're saying is, we know who our king is and you ain't it. Our worship is our business, not yours. The second thing, though, that they say is, no matter what you threaten us with, we will not turn away from worshiping our God. Do you think Nebuchadnezzar got their message? Do you think he was happy with it? The guy loses his freaking mind. He flies into a furious rage, the text tells us. He calls upon his guards to heat the fiery furnace up to seven times its normal heat. I wonder how that conversation can go. Not five times. I want it seven. Burn, baby, burn. Like, I don't know. Seven is the number of completion. So it was a really hot fire. And he takes his strong men, and they bind up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the text tells us that they take him to the fiery furnace, and they go to throw them into the fiery furnace. And because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are bound, they can't get in by themselves. So the guards have to get super close to this fire. And because Nebuchadnezzar is just out of his good-loving mind... Those men who actually throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire actually die from doing so. That's really sad, right? Like the fact that his anger was so out of control, he was so blind with rage that he gave no consideration to the people who were serving him. Have you ever gotten that angry that it had unintended consequences? 
This is just one little snippet that says sometimes anger can lead to unintended consequences. So these men die, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the furnace. Verse 23 tells us <clears throat> they fell bound. Now, this could be the end of the story. And if it was, there would be just enough to go off of here. But the fact that these men go all the way through being bound, tied up, and thrown into the furnace tells us something. It tells us what I just mentioned before. Listen, if, if the story shows us anything, it reveals that the world does not like it when we do not conform. Are you tracking with me? The fact that Nebuchadnezzar, instead of saying, wow, you make a really good point. I'm not the boss of you. And you know what? I, I, I should turn to your God. That's not his initial reaction. His initial reaction is, you will die for this. And that's what it appears was going to happen to these men. They didn't conform, so they were going to die. Now, this isn't always the case when somebody chooses to not conform to the world. At minimum, when you don't conform, you're going to feel a tension. But when you stand firm against a culture that is going to try to conform you to its ways, at minimum, you're going to feel a tension. But what we have to understand is the world doesn't like it. And you will, according to the Word of God, experience suffering when you stand firm in the Lord. There is suffering in store. And as your pastor... It brings me zero joy to highlight this truth. Zero joy to look at you and say that if we are faithful to the Lord in this world, if we stand firm, when we refuse to give in to the party line, that you're going to experience suffering because of it, it brings me no joy to say it, but say it I must because this story illustrates it and Jesus and his disciples confirmed that this is true. Peter would write, we saw this during the summer. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, oh, beloved, I love how he starts with that. Beloved, and then he says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I just kind of wonder if Peter had in mind this story. Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. What's Peter saying? As God's people, you will experience fiery trials. Before Jesus went up back into heaven, in John chapter 15, he said to his disciples, listen, the world hated me. Good news, it's going to hate you. If it hated me, it's going to hate you. You. But then he speaks these words in John chapter 16. I've said all these things to keep you from falling away. I want you to be aware of the potential for suffering so that when it happens, you won't fall away. He says they're going to put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering actually service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you. Church family, we here in America are not acquainted with suffering. Even with everything that's happened with the coronavirus this past year, the, the fact of the matter is, I, I did the statistic this week. The population of the world is 7.64 billion people. The current count of people who've died from the coronavirus, according to the World Health Organization, is 2.6 million. Let's say they undercounted. 
Let's put it at 4 million people. Do you know how many people, percentage-wise, then actually died of the coronavirus this past year if 4 million people died instead of 2.6 million? You want to know how much of the population actually suffered and died because of the coronavirus? 0.05% of the entire population of the world. Is the coronavirus a bad thing? Has it caused some people to suffer? Yes. But you know what? The vast majority of people have faced very little, especially in America, suffering because of it. Locked in our homes, yeah, that's not good. That's not, not fun. But the truth is, we have for so long in this country been unacquainted with the idea of suffering that is experienced by so many other people that if, <clears throat> listen, the Bible says over and over again, if you're God's people, you will experience suffering for standing firm. Like, why do we need to say that? Why do we need to remind ourselves of it? Because Jesus says, because I don't want you to be surprised when it comes. Because if you and I are surprised when it comes, guess what? We're not going to stand firm. We're not going to stand firm. We need to hear this, although it's not fun to hear. I'll tell you who else needs to hear it. Our children need to hear it. If you're not telling your kids that following Christ will not cause them to be ridiculed by some, if you do not prepare them for being called bigots and homophobes and haters for simply holding to what the Bible teaches, for being narrow-minded, for being idiots, if we don't tell our children that this is a potential for them, I'm telling you right now, it's going to be super easy for them to go with the flow. We need to be aware. We need to be aware that the world is pressuring us. We need to be aware of the fact that we have the strong reality that suffering will come upon us when we stand firm for the Lord. But then it begs this big, big question, which is this. If we're going to suffer, if we're going to be pressured, then how do we stand firm in the face of it? How do we stand firm in the face of cultural pressures and potential suffering? The answer for us is found in the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They stand before the king faced with the pressure to conform, with the reality that they could die if they don't, and they look at him and they say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. It's here in how they respond that you and I begin to understand and begin to capture the truth. The truth of how we as the people of God are able to stand firm. The first thing that it shows us is this. Listen, it's not in your notes, so you can write this one in. They knew God's word. They knew God's word. They knew the command of Nebuchadnezzar was to bow down and follow and worship the idol. But they knew that God's word said, you shall have no other what? God's before me. Had they not known that, they would have been tempted to bow the knee to the idol. But because they knew the word of God, because they had been trained in it, they knew this was unacceptable. Can you tell the light from the darkness? Can you tell God's ways from the ways of the world? Can you make that distinction? The only way that you can know that is to know this word. It's why we say that we are committed as a church to grow as disciples spiritually, to give ourselves to knowing the word of God. Because you can't know where you should stand and, and, and when 
it's okay to go with what's happening unless you know what God's word says. They knew the word of God, but they didn't only know the word of God. They remembered that God's in charge. They remembered that God was in charge. They knew God was in charge. They knew who the real king was, and it sure wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. They say to him, O king, actually don't even call him the king. They say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you. Do you know what they're saying in that? They're saying what Jesus said to Pontius Pilate that we saw last week. You would have no authority unless God gave it to you. You're not the boss of me. We know who our king is, and he is not you. Jesus said it this way, don't fear the person who can kill just the body. Fear the the person who can kill both body and soul. They knew who was really in charge. And so if we're going to stand firm, when the world is calling calling us to conform and saying, listen, you're going to suffer if you don't, we have to remind ourselves, our God's in charge. The world, they're not in charge. Second thing, we see that they remember God's power. They remember God's power. They say, if this be so, if, if you will actually throw us into the furnace, our God whom we serve is able to do what? Deliver us. He's able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. That is a bold proclamation. Why would these three guys possibly believe that God could deliver them from that furnace? It's because they knew the stories. They knew how God had delivered the Israelites out of the hand of Pharaoh, up and out of Egypt and into the promised land, how he had parted the Red Sea, how he had given them manna in the desert for 40 years. They knew the power of their God. They knew that their God had given Daniel the ability to know the dream and interpret it. They knew the power of their God able to sustain them and give them health on a diet of vegetables and water. Folks, we need to remember the power of God. For us as Christians, what does that look like? I mean, that was for Daniel. That was for his friends. They knew the stories of the Old Testament. Friends, we know those stories too. But do we just know those stories? No, we know more stories than that. They only knew what God had done for the people of old. We know of the life, of the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know of a power that has conquered sin and death and hell. And when we're being forced and and pressured to conform, when we're faced with suffering, how do we stand firm? You and I recall to our minds the power of God, the one who is able to raise the dead, the one who has prepared an eternal home for us. We know God's power. But it doesn't just stop with, with that. They, they saw the power of God displayed. You and I can say that we've seen the power of God on display, but they also remembered this. They knew that God cared for them. They remembered his power. They remembered who was in charge, but they remembered God's care. We need to remember God's care for, for us. I'm going to say something that I hope isn't too surprising. Do you know that the world does not love you? Do you know your business is not going to die for your sins? They knew that God cared for them. Where do we see that in the text? Do you see how they say, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king? How do Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know that God actually cares for them? Because again, he had seen them care for them. He had seen when Daniel received a dream and its interpretation that their lives were spared. He had seen them ultimately provide for them when they needed the strength 
to be sustained when they wouldn't eat the king's food. They knew that their God cared for them, and they knew that if it was in his will, he would deliver them, and he would deliver them because he cares for his people. Church today, do you know that God loves you? Do you know that he cares for you? When people are hating on you, when people are not liking you for standing firm, do you have such a confidence in God's love that you are willing to stand in the face of those things to say, if all the world hates me, if all turn away, yet I still have the love of my God? Peter would write these words, for Christ has also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Do you know that God loves you and that he cares for you? When you're going through suffering, that can seem very distant, can't it? The presence of God in this way, his love and his care for you, can not seem very real when you're faced with people up in your face hating upon you for standing firm. It's in those moments that you and I remember God's care for you, that Christ suffered for you to bring you from death to life. How do we stand firm in the face of cultural pressures and potential suffering? We remember God's care. We remember God's power. We remember who's in charge. But then there's one more thing, and I close with this. Did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego die in that fire? The story continues. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. The men had been thrown into the fire, and yet he sees something. He says, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered, true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of that fourth man, I can tell it's not Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego. The fourth appears like the son of the gods. Something happened that none expected. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't die. They did not die. Instead, they were sustained. And so Nebuchadnezzar calls out and he says, come on guys, get out of the fire. Come to me. Servants of the Most High, come out and come here. And they came out, and all the officials who were there saw that the fire had not had any power over their bodies. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and here's the true miracle of all. And no smell of fire had come upon them. <laughs> I mean, I get near a fire in my clothes smell like smoke, right? <laughs> that to me is the miracle, right? They come out of this unsinged, but they don't even smell like smoke. They were completely okay. Their lives had been spared. And Nebuchadnezzar notes this right away. And he says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Does he get it now? Seems like he does. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people... Nation or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Can I get an amen to that? Out of the mouth of a pagan, 
Then the king promoted, once again, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the province of Babylon. What happens here? What happens here? It's not just simply that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego remembered God's power, remembered he was in charge, remembered that God cared for them. Ultimately, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this story are teaching us to remember God's presence. Church, when we stand firm in the Lord and when we suffer, are we alone? Who is the fourth person in the fire with Daniel or with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? We can't know for 100%, but almost every theologian says that was Jesus in the fire with him, standing with his children. God's presence, church, is always with you in the midst of any suffering that you go through. We know that to be true because Jesus Christ said to his disciples on that day when he knew that he would go ultimately to the cross, he said, I'm going away, but when I go away, the work that I accomplish will bring about my Holy Spirit to forever and always be with you even to the end of the age. You never suffer alone. And so as we stand before others, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, we stand with Jesus Christ at our side. Five years ago, during the height of some of the things that was happening with ISIS, some ISIS militants came into a village where there were four children all under the age of 15. They came to those children and they said to them, and this was recorded in, in news organizations, they said, say the words that you will follow Muhammad. And you know what those children said? They were quoted as saying from the villagers who were there, they said, no, we will not convert. We love Jesus. We've always loved Jesus. Jesus has always been with us. The militants shouted at the children, say the words, you will follow Muhammad. The children said again, no, we love Jesus. And at their second rebuke, of the militants, all four of the children had their heads chopped off. You and I probably won't be faced with that kind of situation, but four children, all under the age of 15, they stand firm in the face of imminent death, and God didn't deliver them from that. But did he deliver them? Did he deliver them? Because today, they are with their Father in glory. Ultimately, they have been delivered. And one day, they will come back. And if God has not done a work to change those militants' hearts, one day they will stand with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And before those militants, they will hear those militants confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. He was with them in their death. He was with them in their suffering. They were like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Church, suffering in this world for Jesus is real. Conforming to the culture and the pressures of this world, it's real. Standing up to it will often bring about suffering for us. But when it comes, and it will... We remember who's in charge. We remember his care for us. We remember his power. And we ultimately remember his presence. And today, 
Even today, right now, there's a pastor in Canada who's in jail. And he's in jail because he wouldn't stop doing this on Sunday mornings. Canada! So if we don't think it's real, if you're not preparing your hearts for it, then you're not hearing the word of God and he wants you to. Let's pray together. Lord, you know my heart in this matter. You know that there are some messages that bring me great joy because they're messages proclaiming just the goodness and the abundance of, of who you are. And then there's messages like this that are a somber reminder to us, Lord, of the world in which we live, but are also a glorious reminder to us. And that, Lord, is what I pray would be our takeaway, that if we are in Jesus Christ, that today when we stand firm, we are standing firm for that which is right and true and good because it comes from you and it's about you. And that, Lord, if suffering comes because we do, no matter what the world throws at us, Lord, we're prepared, not in and of ourselves, not because we're stronger or smarter, but because, Lord, we know who's in charge. We know that you have all the power. We know that you care for us and that your presence is real and in our lives. Lord, right now I want us to stop Lord, and I want to ask of you to do a work. Some here have no idea about your power, your presence. They're going through this world by themselves. They, they don't have a hope for deliverance. Oh, Lord, today I pray that they would know that you sent your one and only son, the righteous to die for the unrighteous, so that, Father, when, Lord, the, the ultimate suffering of death comes, that that won't be the end. So, Lord, if there's any today who have not put their faith and hope in you, Lord, that you would turn their hearts to you once again, we pray, and we ask this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.